I want us to think this morning about the, the whole subject of Christ with power. I know it's only a few days uh, before Christmas, so I, I suppose most of you, you're, you're pretty sharp, you're wise, you, you pretty get pretty, probably got all your Christmas stuff done, right? You know, you're just settling in for the week, uh, but just in case, just in case you hadn't done it all yet, uh, a nice SUV truck, you know, along the lines of uh, a Lexus, you know, SUV that has enough power to pull a boat or a camper, you know, if you need it, you know, you want power. I hate Christmas gifts with, with insufficient power, you know, and I'm not the only one. Just ask anybody who's got a toy that didn't get batteries, you know, and batteries were needed. You want Christmas to have sufficient power. When you think about Christmas celebrations, notice the difference between a Christian celebration of Christ and a non-Christian celebration of Christ. And you can zero in lots of times on the presence or the absence of power. As Christians, we come together to adore Christ, and we adore Him with all of His power. Non-Christians like to just keep Christ in a manger, or keep Christ in some helpless state. They don't really like the, the concept of Christ in power because Christ in power means he's someone we bow down to. He's someone we submit to. He's someone we're under and must obey. And so they stay away from that whole thing. But as we look at Scripture, I want you to see the, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that in coming to earth, Christ comes in power. Let's look at Luke chapter 1 uh, to begin. Luke 1, beginning at verse 31. And notice just this repeated emphasis on the power of Christ as he comes. Luke 1, verse 31. And behold, uh, angel speaking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be, notice the first word, first description, he will be great. He's going to be a frail little thing. No, he's going to be great, and he will be called son of, again, another powerful description of, of greatness. He will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne, another tremendous, powerful description. This child gets to sit on the throne of his father David, and he will reign. Again, he's a ruler. He comes as a ruler over the house of Jacob forever. So it's an eternal rule. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and he said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her six months, for nothing will be impossible with God. And it's interesting, as you read that passage, um, you put yourself typically in Mary's position, and this angelic power is, is speaking to her of things that, you know, just blow her mind, it throws her out of her world, and she's just taking all she can take and says, you know, the, the greatness that you're talking about happening to me, it, it just can't possibly happen. I'm not even pregnant. 
And you would expect at some point some maybe divine description of divine conception. And yet that's not what comes. She doesn't get an explanation of how God's going to take up residence in her womb. She's just told something great's going to happen. God's going to do it. It's going to be a great power. It says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's like, how do you see that? There's, there's a power over you like a shadow. And she's just sitting there like, oh, I get it now. And, you know, in a sense, and I don't get anything now. It's like, all I know is this is great. This is huge. This is awesome. This is powerful. It's, it's something that requires the power of God, and the power of God is somehow like a shadow over me. And for that reason, the holy child coming out of me will be the Son of God. Like, whoa. And he says, as a sign, I, I want you to know Elizabeth, which was, you know, is, is impossible. Elizabeth was way too old to have children. As a sign to you that God can do powerful stuff, he's already put a child in Elizabeth's womb. And then he ends up this whole discussion. These things are literally, in human terms, impossible, but nothing is impossible with God because he has power. The, the whole Christmas story is wrapped in, in the power of God and Christ coming in a powerful way. There's nothing lame about it. There's nothing frail about it. There's nothing small about it. Look at some other passages. Look at Revelation 4, verse 8. Revelation 4. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings or full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, how is Christ described in this passage by, again, these powerful, angelic beings? He is described as the Almighty. When did he become all-powerful? Did, did he, was he born frail and had to emerge into this powerful being? No, he's not described that way at all. It says, he is all-powerful. He is the Almighty who was, past tense. He didn't become powerful. He was powerful. He is powerful. He will be powerful. All three tenses are used to describe him there as the Almighty who was, who is, who is to be the Almighty, never ceasing to be Almighty. Even in Christ's infancy, He was powerful. He is powerful. He becomes powerful. Christ was never in a helpless state. He always ministers from a position of great Power. Now look at the prophecy of Christ. Go back to Isaiah 9, verse 6. This famous passage, Handel used for his Messiah that we're familiar with. But don't forget the description here again of Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's pretty significant, powerful for the position that Christ is coming to have all rule 
rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called, and then you get these four descriptions. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Nothing helpless, nothing small, mighty God. When Christ, this son, is born, he will be called mighty God. He will be called the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Oh, powerful, the Almighty. Our culture wants a little powerless lay him in a manger kind of Christ. But we don't. And we don't have that kind of Christ. We have the Son of God born to Mary, described as the Almighty who was, who is, who is to come, the one where all government rests upon his shoulders, the one who is greater than all other power, the eternal one, the one who sits on a throne, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the one who comes with power, and because he has power, he has power to save sinners. He has power to adopt sons. He has power to destroy the enemy. He has power to exalt us to his glory and to rule over heaven and earth without dispute. We just want to stop and praise him and worship him and adore him because he's mighty God. And he's ours. See, that's one of the distinctions. If you've got non-Christian neighbors and friends, they just, they, they, they don't get it. What's the deal with, with your life? So I, I'm surrendered. I'm submitting to the Almighty God who took on flesh. And we just, we gather to, to remember that moment in which Christ came into our world, invaded our lives as mighty God. I hope you see the significance of that and can focus on that this week. I want to give you four kind of ways to do so. First of all, Christ's power to save sinners. It takes power to do that. You don't just lay down your life, but it takes great power. Look at um, Genesis 3.15. Here's the, the announcement of Christ's coming. You know, Jonathan preached last week, and he seemed to impress some of you guys with this whole seminary discussion about theodicy. And, uh, you know, when he did that, I, I got a little jealous, quite frankly. And I said, okay, if he's going to throw out seminary terms, I can do that. All right, Genesis 3.15. This is the proto-evangelon. You got that? The proto-evangelon. It's two Greek words put together. First Greek word proto means first. Evangelon, evangelism, evangel, it means good news. This is the first announcement of good news. We needed good news because this is the beginning of the bad news. Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3. And as soon as they sin, God gives the proto-evangelon. The first announcement of how to deal with this sin. Good news. Genesis 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, don't miss what's going on here. Because, like I said, this is the first announcement. That something's good's going to happen. What's bad that's been going on is Satan has used a serpent to trick Adam and Eve. And now God comes and speaks to Satan through that serpent that he's used to manifest himself. And so he's, he's cursing the serpent here, but quite literally cursing Satan. He says, I, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent or to Satan, and the woman and between your seed 
and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, nowhere in Scripture does um, or do we find that Satan has children, that he has seed that um, becomes the children of Satan. But the Scripture does uh, refer to people as being heirs of Satan. Let me just give you one quick reference. Look over at John chapter 8, and I'll come back to Genesis 3. But John chapter 8, verse 44, says <coughs> Jesus is speaking to some church folks, Pharisees. And he says, you are, John 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. That's just another way of Jesus saying to these Pharisees, you're children of the devil. And he refers to people that way, even though there's no biological birthing of people as children of the devil. But people here that are described as children of the devil are those who have rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you've rejected Christ as your Lord and Savior, your only other option is to be a servant of Satan. And he says, that's who you are. You're, you're children of the devil. You're doing the same thing your father, the devil, does. What is the father, the devil? He's known as the father of lies. He starts with this lie in Genesis 3. He's the father of lies. And you who are rejecting the truth, embracing lies, you're the children of the devil. You go back to Genesis 3, verse 15, and I want you to see he's describing a war. He says, I'm going to put a, an enmity. It's a warfare between you and the woman, between the serpent, which is Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, now don't miss the he. In Genesis 3, verse 15, if you, um, and, and uh, you know, where's Joel at? He was trying to impress you with Greek. Uh, just so you know, Joel, here, the Hebrew, okay, is in the singular. We're using just all kind of big stuff for you, right? But you can see that. The pronoun he is singular. He said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And then he says, but specifically, I'm thinking of one singular male that's coming. He. So he switches to the singular pronoun. He will bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. He's given you a description of a man with a heel on his foot, and he's just, you know, grinding this serpent into the ground. He's using his heel, which is not something you can terribly damage, and he's just using that to grind Satan into the ground, to crush him. And that's literally what Christ comes to do. So from that first announcement, everyone who are believers in God from that point were waiting for this child who would come, who would take his heel and crush Satan. And literally that's what Christ came to do. It, it reminded me, I was uh, deer hunting with uh, Andy and my father one day, and we were walking back from our deer stands down a, an old country road, and um, three side by side, and um, we heard an eastern diamondback rattlesnake, just, and when we heard it, 11 rattles on this big snake, it was already coiled up, the rattle was off to the side, shaking, and ready to pounce on my father. Um, and when I saw it, I grabbed, and he had the easiest gun, I grabbed his gun and just immediately pulled the trigger and shot the head of that rattlesnake just clean off. You know, because we're just a few feet away. Now, have you ever killed a snake and you've seen him wiggle off and then come back one day? Somehow he grows back to life? Trust me, this rattlesnake did not wiggle off. He did not come back to life one day. His head was cleaned out of the country. And that's what I think about Christ. He 
created this crushing blow to Satan. So Satan does not come back and have sway. I imagine Satan thought as Christ was hanging on the cross, I've got him. And yet Christ dies, was buried, rose from the dead and said, you used to hold people in their grasp, in your grasp. You used to hold people in the grave. You used to keep people under bondage to sin. Not anymore. I am the resurrection and the life. I have power to give them eternal life forever and ever. That's what Christ came to do. To Satan, to take away that power he had to hold us. And it's gone. Look at another passage. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. says, therefore, since the children, that's us. Children of man, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, you might not have known that, but that was the case. You were born into a world. Satan has the power of death. Satan holds us in the grave. That was the nature of mankind, and Christ knew that. Christ says, I want to free those who are in bondage to Satan. I, I want to let them out of the grave. I want to out of, out of that bondage. To do that, he says, I need to be one of them. To die in their place. He took on flesh and blood. For that purpose. He died and he's died for the purpose to render powerless. See the need for power? He had to render Satan powerless. So when Satan says, I want to hold you, Christ says, not anymore. I'm the resurrection of life. You can't do that to my own. I have set them free. That's the glory of Christ coming in power, having sufficient power to deal with Satan and his grip on the grave and on us as sinners. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Share a few passages in this book as we conclude this thought. Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. You don't really you don't get salvation without power. And it's described here. Salvation's come. For that to come, power had to come. The kingdom of our God, he's mighty God, had to come. The authority of Christ has come. And then it mentions um, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Satan has limited power, limited time. Christ has come and destroyed that. Look at Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I wish, you know, <coughs> this microphone is not nearly powerful enough to describe for you what's happening here. Just something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. 
you get the picture there, they're saying it in unison. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're watching this, this heavenly power struggle that started in Genesis 3, 15, and they're seeing it's a no contest. Christ has the glory. Christ has the power, the accuser, Satan. He is cast down. In one other passage, Revelation 20. And I'll begin at verse 3. Revelation 20 says, And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then skip down to verse 10. And the devil, so if you didn't know who we were talking about here, it's clear. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. And the brimstone, and where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, regardless of what you do with this thousand years, there's lots of arguments about what is the thousand years and when does this thousand years start, when does it end. Regardless of what you do with it, The conclusion is the same. At the beginning of the thousand years, Christ is in charge. In the thousand years, Christ is in charge. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is removed completely, thrown into the abyss, not for another thousand years, but forever and ever and ever. And the reason is because someone has showed up with enough power to dispense of Satan, and that one who has showed up with power is Christ Jesus our Lord. He has won the victory. He is Emmanuel, mighty God with us. So I don't know about you, but if you ever hunger for salvation, if you ever hunger to be freed from the bondage of sin, if you ever hunger to get out of this abyss, there is one with power who can free and who can deliver, and that one is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we come to him, and we worship him, and we adore him because he has power to save sinners. Second, I want you to see this Christmas season. Christ not only has power to save sinners, but he has power to adopt sons. Extremely significant. Look at John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. John 1, 12 through 13. Here's John's Christmas text, the announcement of Christ coming. Christ was In the beginning, he was the very word of God, creating everything that came into being, came into being through Christ. And Christ came, took on flesh, verse 12 says, and then as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here, again, the word power is found. As many as received him, then he gave the power. May be translated for you the right. Could be translated the authority. We a lot of times associate authority with power. But as many as received Christ, 
Do you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? He says, what he does then is give you authority to walk around as a son of God, to live as a son of God. He gives you the right, the power, the status of sons of God. Now, how can that happen? See, you can't take that status to yourself. I can't make any of you adopt me. You could offer adoption. I'd like to adopt somebody, okay? Well, I choose you. It doesn't matter. I didn't say I chose you yet. You see, adoption has to be initiated by the adoptor. And Christ says he comes to adopt. He has power to do so. As those who will receive him as Lord and Savior, he says, I will give you the authority, the status, the power to be a son of God. And he makes it very clear. You don't do that yourself. He says, it's not because of biology. You didn't get born into this position. It's not by the will of man. You don't choose it. It's not by anything you do in the flesh. This is the will of God. God chooses to adopt sons. Wow, that's pretty significant to become a son of God. That's the Christmas message that Christ came with power to adopt children. You see, as soon as Adam and Eve got the curse in chapter 3 of Genesis, they got thrown out of the garden. All of us were born outside of fellowship with God. All of us, none of us were born in the Garden of Eden. We were all born in the Garden of Satan. And Christ says, I want to come and adopt some of those and bring them into my kingdom. He comes with power to do so. Look at Galatians chapter 4. This is one of the most beautiful Christmas texts in the Bible. Galatians chapter 4. And it's a small text for those of you who don't have much time to read or whatever on Christmas. Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time came. So we're talking about it's time now for Christ to be born. When that time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive, and here's the key phrase, the adoption as sons. Because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son so that he might adopt sons. Came with power to adopt. You know, just imagine having the power to give out millions of dollars. You know, if, if, it would be so, so much fun, wouldn't it, if, if somebody were to come and say, David, I, I want you to give out the next 10 winning lottery tickets. Every ticket's worth a million dollars. You can give the ticket to whoever you want to. What power? That'd be so much fun. I could just, I want to give Eric a million dollars. Hallelujah. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's fun. And I want to give another one. I get it this Eric. I want to do a theme of Eric's. A million dollars. You know, if you had that, you see, you, that's a lot of power. That's a lot of authority. You're changing people's lives by being able to do that. Take it up, you know, a, a thousand notches. I don't want to just give a, a million dollars. I want to give them the right to be called Son of God. So that when they die, they are an heir. Not just to a million dollars. But they get to step in to the glories of heaven and look around and say, this is mine. I have just inherited this. And God says, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. And people have not even begun to imagine what I have prepared for those who are my sons. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own the hills. I own the cattle. I own the millions and the billions and the trillions. And yet, you see, when you're an heir, you have no needs anymore. 
There's no gift that's any more significant anymore. You say, David, do you need this? No, I've got it. Do you need some of this? No, I've got it. See, all of this is mine. Which is, which is why John says in 1 John 3, you, you, you've, you've probably meditated on this passage and it just blows me away. It says, um, we shall become, it says, it says, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but when we see him, we will be like him. And he starts off that verse, 1 John 3, verse 1, says, Behold, behold, just stop and try to take it in. We have become the children of God. Try to, try to fathom that. You have become a child of God. What do you need? What gift do you need? You've become a child of God. You've become an heir to the King of Kings, the throne of thrones, to the glories of heaven, to this imperishable paradise that all awaits us in Christ. And it began in this Christmas season when Christ says he took to himself the power to adopt us as sons. Not only the power to save us from our sins, but the power to adopt us as his sons. It's just, it just mind-boggling. And then third, he has power to make us holy. You would say, well, if you have the power to make me a son, can you make me act like a son? Can I start living right now more like a son of God than like a son of man? And Christ says, oh, absolutely. I have the power to do that. The power to, to make us holy. And sometimes we forget that. Let me just give you one quick example. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 14 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6. Beginning at verse 14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. Now, as you read that passage, you say, so I have power to do that? And the answer is, of course, absolutely. You have power now as a believer, to say no to sin. A prostitute tempts you, and you say, I don't, I don't need to do that. Because I have power to live like a son of God. I have power to be holy. I am joined to Christ. Why would I want to switch sides and now join myself again to Satan and his servants? And to sin and its devastation. I have power to, to walk a clean and holy life. He says, choose to do that. He says, and, and, and you say, well, why? Because I per Christ says, because I purchased you with my own blood. You've been bought with a price, which means I'm not my own. You're not your own. You belong to Christ. Um, one of the things my wife did this year, she restored an old door, and it's now our laundry room door. But it was this door that, we found at some antique shop up in Brevard that had, you know, a hundred years worth of paint on it. It's been painted four or five times. And she brought it home, and she's going to strip all of the paint off of this. And several people saw it in process and said, well, I like it just the way it is. Just leave it like that. You know, what are you doing with that? That's fine right there. And the answer to all of that was, no, it's not done. So you throw more stripper on there, and you throw steel wool at it, and you get a wire brush after it, and then you're just shredding this piece of wood. 
busted the glass out of it, put new glass in it. You can do all that. Why? Because we own it. We bought it. It's ours. We get to choose. We have the authority. And that's what Christ is saying here. He says, I have purchased you with my blood. If I want to strip you down, if I want to clean you up, if I want to change what's going on, I can do that because I have purchased you. You are mine. And in that purchase, I determined to make you holy. I give you authority and power now to be holy. I wonder sometimes as believers, do you, do you recognize that and cry out, God, give me power to say no to sin. That was your plan, right? So ask God for it. God, fill me with power to say no to sin and to start living and walking and looking like the child of God you have destined me to be. Christ has that power and gives that power and wants us to use that power. Um, the, the people who walked around with Jesus began to realize it. He has power to cast out unclean spirits. And they would cry out to Christ, give me that power. Or he has power to cleanse from, from all sickness and illness. You remember the woman who, who would run up to him and said, hey, if I could just touch his garments... I know power would come out from him, and I would be clean. They recognize the power of Christ to transform their lives, to cleanse them, to make them different. And they ran to Christ for that power. We need to do the same. You're struggling with, with sin and sickness and God's got reasons, but ask Him for power. God has power to sanctify us so that we're not trapped, but we're becoming the beautiful children of God He's destined us to be. Well, I could spend more and more time on power, but let me just kind of jump to the end. It, when you start thinking about Christ's power, the, what's the all-encompassing thought on power? And that is His rule his reign, and it's described in Christ coming to rule to reign, that He's coming to rule on the throne of David forever and ever. He rules heaven and earth. He's over all. That's power. Um, two places that uh, always come to mind. Let me. The background is Daniel seven. Let me read that one first. Daniel seven, fourteen and fifteen, and then Matthew twenty-eight. Verse 18, in Daniel 7, this is describing uh, the time of the crucifixion. Christ is crucified. He tells the thief on the cross beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. So when Christ expires on the cross, he goes up to paradise. And as he gets there, this is what is said to him. Daniel 7, uh, beginning verse 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up. So this is Christ. He's been to earth. He's now coming up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all the peoples and the nations and men of every tongue or language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So that's the heavenly description of what's taking place. The earthly description, look over at Matthew 28, verse 18. Here, Christ had told his disciples ahead of time, he would die, be buried, raised. He'd come back and spend some time with them. And as soon as he rose again from the dead, he told the women, go tell the disciples, remind them I said I would meet with them, tell them to meet me on the mountain in Galilee. And so that's what's happening. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven 
and on earth. This is mine now. I've, I've earned the right to it. I've purchased it with my own blood. I died on a cross. I was buried. I arose. I went to God the Father Almighty. He gave to me all dominion, authority, and power for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And so I want you now, with my power, to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue and make disciples and baptize them and teach them everything whatsoever I've commanded. But the point is, the reason you do this, the reason it happens this way, is because I have all power. In heaven and on earth forever and ever. There's no one that usurps Christ's power or his authority. His, it's a heavenly power. It's an earthly power. It's an every person power, every language, every tongue, every place. That's the power of Christ. He came with power. And he comes and he, he gives away power. Uh, he told his disciples right after this, he said, now, Luke, Luke chapter 24, he says, wait, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Luke 24, verse 49, I believe it is. Until you receive power from on high. And when you receive power from on high, then you shall be my witnesses. And you'll be my witnesses with power. And so they waited in Jerusalem for power. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They said, we now have the power of God. And they began to proclaim Christ in Jerusalem and Judea. And they began to spread to Samaria and the remotest parts of the world. But before it got there, they get arrested for preaching and teaching. And the people in Jerusalem says, who gives you such power? Who gives you the authority to do these things? Acts chapter 4. And they said, if we're on trial today because some guy got healed, that's nothing. Why we are here, the reason we're here today is because of the name of Jesus. And because of the power of Jesus. And because no one in heaven and earth is saved except through Jesus. And these great men of Jerusalem said, all they could figure out was these people had been with Jesus. And he had power. The same command is given to us. Wait for power from on high. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the power of God. I just... Uh, give you one other passage in Revelation. I'll quit, okay? One, two more passages. Can I do two more? Revelation 5, verse 12. Revelation 5, verse 12. Verse 11 says, They looked, and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing." When you, when you recognize who Christ is, when you recognize what Christ has done and accomplished, there is no one you would want to possess all power more than Christ. He is worthy to have power. It will never be used wrongly. He is worthy to have power. And he has power. And all heaven recognizes the power of of Christ. And I think it's foolish for us to live our lives not recognizing the power of Christ. Every day is a day as a steward under the powerful one who controls heaven and earth. And as we we think of our Christmas season, I don't want us to raise up a next generation thinking There's just some 
little helpless child in a manger. That's not the Bible. Christ came as mighty God. He came with power. His power didn't begin. It was. It is. It's always. The last passage is 2 Timothy chapter 5. I think it's about verse 3. It talks about, oh, I'll write it down. Yes, 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. It says, in the last days, all these bad things will happen. But in the last days, there will be people who will hold to a form of religion and deny the power thereof. That's what I see at Christmas. I see a lot of people hold to a form of religion. But they don't talk about the power. The power's in Christ. Do you just have a form of religion? Or do you have unsurpassing power in Christ? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the all-powerful Christ. Let us not get so wrapped up into our religions that we miss the power struggle between Christ and the devil, that we miss the glorious victory that Christ has won, that we miss the wonderful inheritance that is ours because of the power of Christ to adopt, that we miss the freedom that can be ours to be delivered from sin and the grave. May we join the angels in heaven and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor and dominion forever. We love you. We adore you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.